Uh, taking from 1 Timothy uh, 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. Oh, sorry, let me start again. <laughs> As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines, or any longer, any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary, to the, set, to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Amen. Okay, starting at verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful appointing me to his service even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you might fight the good fight, holding on to faith and good conscience. Some have rejected these, so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Emmaus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Amen. Father, thank you that you have given this your written word to us. Help me as I put across this message, because you know that I argued with you about some of it, and you just told me to behave and get on with it as usual. Thank you, Father, that we have freedom to meet and to learn. and We have also freedom to go out 
and tell others about your son Jesus. Amen. I'm sure that uh, when some people heard that I was going to be speaking tonight, you were expecting some obscure passage from the Old Testament, if not indeed that great book of joy which is Leviticus. So if you're hungering for Leviticus, the chapter I have for you tonight is Leviticus 19. And I know that Chris and Sue were expecting something in the Old Testament because they almost fainted when I told them earlier. Wasn't that right? So did I catch you out? Our passage tonight, which was wonderfully read for us, is found in the New Testament. It's the first letter, uh, it's the letter of First Timothy, where the aged Paul is reminding and instructing uh, young Timothy, his disciple, who's probably about 40 years old now. The whole of the New Testament church is growing and spreading far and wide away from its starting point in Jerusalem. Most scholars agree that this letter was written about 64 AD, so it's now about eight years after Paul's three-year stay in Ephesus coming to an end. The key verses for the book are 1 Timothy 3 verse 16 and 1 Timothy 6 verses 11 to 12. And sometimes I wonder what it would have been like to have been a first century Christian. I'm not 2,000 years old. I'm only 300 years old. The original followers of Jesus, the apostles, have either died or they will be soon. So who will ensure that good teaching and guidance will be given to me and others around me? If I was one of those first century Christians. Who will ensure that sound doctrine of salvation through Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, will be preserved? Interesting questions. And some of those concerns are met by the Apostle Paul in what we call the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and the book of Titus. Paul's getting on in age now. He's in Macedonia, but his representative Timothy, or Timbo to us Australians, was left in Ephesus. And by all accounts, he was undergoing a very torrid time. The church in Ephesus was still made up of small groups of believers, and each group had a leader with some experience, knowledge, and therefore influence. So you can imagine the turmoil if their understanding of the gospel would become twisted, contorted, and infected with some kind of false teaching and myth. The turmoil would act like a virus going from group to group, from person to person. Those silent whispers. Mmm. And the records we have of the early church show that when false teaching had been encountered elsewhere, it had usually come from outsiders to that local church, such as in Corinth. However, here in Ephesus, it's much more insidious. These false teachers had come from within. Maybe even house group leaders. Wow. These house group leaders set up by Paul. So was Paul surprised? Not a bit. In Acts chapter 20 we read this. Paul speaking. I know that after I leave you, Ephesians, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. 
So be on your guard, Ephesians. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, night and day with tears. So the Ephesians can't say they were not warned, can they? So Paul has delegated his authority to Timothy, his personal representative in Ephesus. Timothy is encouraged to counter with sound doctrine any false teaching, particularly in regards to the law of Moses, those ten commandments. It seems in this letter that the leaders were mixing Jewish ideas and pagan myths into Christian thought. We read about those things in verse 3 and 4. These things were distracting the church from doing God's work and were instead promoting fantasy, controversy and meaningless talk. Gossip. We don't gossip, do we? No. So Paul writes to Timothy. He'd already written his letter to the church in Ephesus. They'd already had that. That was a few years ago now. This letter is a personal one. He didn't write to the church itself again. He wrote a personal letter in order to bolster Timothy's authority and position against those who were spreading false teaching. That's probably why Paul puts his credentials at the beginning. Paul is saying to this church in Ephesus, I, Paul, am an apostle because God has commanded and chosen me to be so. So you Ephesians, wise up. Listen to Timothy, and you will not go astray from the truth. And Timothy would no doubt have shared this letter with the church in Ephesus. So here's the situation. So let's start with the church in Ephesus before moving on to Timothy, Paul, and ultimately God. Some leaders in the church were teaching doctrines contrary to that of Paul. They were being troublemakers, causing rebelliousness and dissent. The NIV translates it as false doctrine, but as another translation puts it, a different doctrine, as in different from apostolic teaching. These people were mixing myths and legends in with a true doctrine of solid apostolic faith. It led them to teach a different Jesus, making a Jesus who was different from the Jesus of Paul and of the apostles. Just as the Corinthian church had been urged by false teachers to follow a different Jesus, so was the church in Ephesus now. There was also a desire of these troublemakers to inflict some form of legalistic Judaism upon the church, where a number of Jewish ceremonies were seen to be still binding upon those who were followers of Jesus, making that a gospel of works rather than a gospel of faith, of grace. And for the Jewish people, genealogies were of utter importance because it linked them back to Abraham. And by doing so, their salvation would be guaranteed. Or so they thought. A kind of false gospel in the light of Jesus Christ and his salvation work. And Paul here says, he says, look, any reliance on genealogies is useless and unreliable. Genealogies do not promote good work and a good conscience. To rely on genealogies for salvation is a gospel of works you foolish Ephesians, as opposed to the salvation through Jesus Christ, which is salvation based on grace alone, given by God through faith alone. And this teaching combining myths and genealogies was promoting controversy and speculation rather than unity and morality. They were being contentious for the sake of arguments and quarrels. 
Whereas the goal of apostolic teaching was to be born from love and to result in love. Love, issuing forth from a good conscience and an uncontaminated faith in God. Love of God and love of others is the product of teaching true doctrine, says Paul to Timothy. That's why we study doctrine, or part of it, as opposed to the dissension, bitterness and contrariness of the false teachers. So Timothy, do not touch, do not taste, and instruct the Ephesian church not to touch or taste. These false teachers from inside the church were promoting nothing but their own glory, rather than seeking and pronouncing the glory of Jesus Christ alone. They were leading people out of a secure salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and into an insecure salvation based on works. These people were without a sincere faith, a pure heart, or a good conscience, and had wandered from the true gospel. They were abusing the law rather than teaching it. Instead, Paul explains to Timothy, that the law, the law is indeed good. He explains that the proper use of the law is to restrain people from doing evil, that rules and laws are not there for those who are obedient, but to correct and train those who are disobedient. The law can't save anybody, but only reveal the need of a saviour. In verses 9 to 11, Paul gives some examples of those who are breaking the law willfully. And if you look into Leviticus 19, you will see that they are breaking those laws. So into this mix, Paul thrusts young Timothy. Let me read from verses 18 to 20, and please do have your Bibles open. I should have said that at the beginning, therefore you can check upon what I am saying. Verse 18, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them, you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these, and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Armonius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. What do we know about Timothy? We know that his um, mum was a Jewess and that his father was a Gentile. We know that Timothy was converted to Christianity early on in his life and he was taken by Paul to assist him in his work for the Gospel. And he was particular picked out to encourage the new churches sprouting up and around. So Timothy was basically an assistant apostle Paul, without a doubt, had taught Timothy in private as they travelled and conversed together. And Paul endearingly calls Timothy his son, even though he probably did not bring Timothy to faith. And here Timothy is instructed by Paul to keep fighting the good faith and battling the false teachers. Timothy and therefore the church in Ephesus had a choice to make. Will they keep following Paul and accept his wisdom? Will they keep on deciding to follow Jesus of Nazareth? Or will they succumb to the wiles and the whims of the false teachers amongst them? Timothy has been instructed to silence the troublemakers, 
Yet no doubt he would also be feeling the pressure to conform to the whims of those very same troublemakers, those false teachers. So what is Timothy to do? He has a choice to make, doesn't he? Does he succumb or does he fight? Well, Paul says, boy, boy, fight, doesn't he? That's an Australian language. Now, when it comes to Timothy, he's been instructed to remember what was told to him in the past, just as Adam was told at his baptism that he would be an evangelist. Is that right? Yep. We don't know what they were told about, those prophecies were made about Timothy. But it does seem that when they were uttered, Timothy was set apart for ministry. Timothy is to keep going, to keep persevering in the true faith and doctrine of Jesus Christ. Moreover, he is commanded to. He still has a choice. He could, he could just ignore Paul, couldn't he? But would you ignore Paul if he sent you something? So Timothy has a moral obligation and duty to do as Paul has instructed and he is to fight and defend the faith against the error-filled agitators. And Paul says that Timothy has two things of great worth. He has the objectivity of an apostolic faith and he has the subjectivity of a good conscience. Apostolic faith is belief and a good conscience is action. If he holds on and uses both of them, Timothy will have fought that good fight of faith. By preserving a good conscience, Timothy will keep the faith. And by remembering what he believes is apostolic truth, Timothy will be reminded to behave correctly because belief and behaviour are co-joined. What is truly believed will affect behaviour. And that's where the two blasphemers in verse 20, Alexander and Hymenaeus, had gone wrong. Their apostasy and behaviour was so bad that Paul had to exert church discipline against them, just as he had excommunicated somebody from the Corinthian church. Radical as it seems to us today, Remember that church is still in an embryonic and formative stage. This execution, was it permanent? It seems by Paul's use of the word taught that they could be welcomed back into fellowship if they were willingly, willing to truly repent, to learn and then be restored. So that's Timothy. But what do we learn here of Paul, this great apostle? Let me read to you some verses again. Verses 1 to 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus Our Lord, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. And verses 12 to 14, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, 
appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul, as I'm sure we know, is an apostle, a church leader. He's been set apart for this role by God and by Jesus the Son, empowered by the Spirit. He is in passion here, in this deeply personal letter to Timothy. Even Paul had feelings. Can you believe that? More feelings than us Australian males. And you can almost imagine Paul writing imploringly to this Timothy. Whatever Paul does, he does it for the glory of God. Why? Because it is God who is strengthening him. Paul, once an opponent and oppressor of Christ and his church, now commanded to be a dynamic servant of this very same Jesus, whom he persecuted. This Paul, who was a blasphemer and persecutor of the church, has been transformed. Paul cannot forget what he has done to the early church, persecuting it and thereby also persecuting Jesus Christ. Paul can't forget how he was transformed from a violent sinner into the very same servant of Jesus Christ. How did this come about? Not through Paul's own doing, but through the inexhaustible patience and love and work of Jesus Christ, transforming him via the twin wellsprings of grace and mercy. God's amazing grace and mercy so abundantly poured out upon him. Paul's faith and love are in and for Jesus Christ and for him alone. And when Paul says, He is the worst of sinners in verse 16. Is that not a very personal statement to make? Because when each of us confesses our sin to God, we should all feel as if we are the worst of the worst. Or at least I know I do when I confess several times a day. I won't tell you how many sometimes. So Paul is compelled and thrust forward not by his own inner strength, but solely by the love of God and of Jesus Christ under the impetus of the Holy Spirit. The and Paul, let's now come to what it says about God. Verses 15 to 17. Paul writing here to a young, nervous Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners Jesus Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Then as if Paul can't help it, he then writes verse 17. 
now to the King Eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's as if Paul is going, wow! I bet every one of us says wow at least once a day. I've heard Adam said, say it several times. So this is the true God. The true God is opposed to the different God which is being proposed by the false teachers and miscreants. And the first thing we see about Paul's God is in verse 1. God is a saving God. And not only that, he is also the Saviour, Jesus Christ. Wow! This is a God... This God is our hope, says Paul. Forget the different God being proposed by the miscreants and troublemakers. Our God alone is to be our hope, exclaims Paul. This saving God of hope is imbued with grace, mercy and peace. Because of God's grace and mercy, Paul was now saved in one of God's servants and apostles. Mercy comes forth from grace because from God's mercy there is forgiveness of sins. Without grace and mercy, peace with God is unobtainable. You silly Ephesians! You can hear Paul thinking it. And a God of mercy means that the follower of Jesus, the Christian, has a throne of grace to run to with boldness in order to seek the help of the great King of Majesty. Wow! This sound doctrine conforms to the blessed gospel and teachings of Jesus Christ rather than opposing it. And in verse 15, Paul sums up this gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Wow, isn't that good news? Why aren't we excited about it? We'll come on to that later. Because of Jesus Christ, eternal life is granted to those whose hope and faith is in him alone, through faith alone. And just as Jesus was immensely patient with Paul, so he was and is with each of us who are Christians. I mean, I can wear out anybody's patience. Just ask young me. And just as he is patient with us, he's out patient with those still outside the church who aren't following him yet. Yet. Are you praying for those you know who aren't Christians? And are you praying for them faithfully and systematically? Perhaps we need to do that. And moreover, this God This great God is a personal God. He's not some object that you put up onto a shelf and worship. This great and awesome King is still calling people to follow Him. He's still calling people to accept the free offer of salvation through Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Are you one of His followers yet? I'm bound to ask or are you still exercising Jesus' great patience with you, just as Jesus did with Paul? And then in verse 17, Paul explodes into this line of utter and complete 
adoration about God. Verse 17, this God, this King, is eternal, immortal, invisible, the only one. This God is before time, outside of time, and after time. Wow, amazing that this God is also a personal God. Can you get that through your head? It just blows your mind. And this God, who was outside of time, entered into time in the person of Jesus Christ in order to save humanity, which was thoroughly incapable of saving themselves. How's your doctrine? How's your doctrine, says Paul to these Ephesians? Forget your genealogies, you troublemakers, and remember and return to God's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Jesus alone. And Paul ecstatically exclaims that God is king, a mighty ruler, majestic sovereign over all, as we sung about earlier. This God has established a kingdom through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who lives within his people. This king is eternal, the king of kings and the king of all ages, past, present and future, and not bound by the unstable ebb and flow of time's fluctuations. Times ebb and flow like the tides of the ocean up. You've been on the boat recently that would go up and down without sinking, I hope. This God is the King Eternal. He of the ages and beyond the ages is often called so in Old Testament worship. This King is immortal beyond the ravages and decay of time. This immortal King is incorruptible, imperishable and unchanging. This King is invisible beyond the scope of vision of mere mortal humanity. Yet humanity had once glimpsed his glory when God, who is outside of time and space, entered into time and space in the God-man, Jesus Christ. This King is also the one and only God, who is the one and only great King. This King is unique, majestic and without rival or parallel. Is this King your King? And because this King is eternal, immortal, invisible and the only then he alone is worthy of glory and honour. Wow! God, the King of holy and majesty. Moreover, as I said, this God is personal. Look with me through these verses. Look at the personal pronouns that Paul uses to describe his relationship with God. Verse 1, Our Saviour our hope. Verse 11, He entrusted to me. Verse 12, Our Lord who has given me strength that He considered me trustworthy appointing me to His service. Verse 14, The grace of our Lord has poured out on me abundantly along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And verse 16, I was shown mercy so that in me, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Wow. So there you have it. It's 
64 AD, the church in Ephesus is in a complete and utter mess. Timothy is drowning under the pressure to conform. Paul has heard about it and is writing to encourage Timothy. And Timothy has a choice to make. Does he succumb to the pressures thrust upon him by the false teachers, the troublemakers and miscreants to follow a false god, a false Jesus, a false doctrine? Or does he continue to follow the true God, the eternal, immortal, invisible and only King and the apostolic doctrines taught to him by Paul, the Apostle, by command of God? So what about us today? In a lot of churches, the word doctrine is unfashionable. I've had people say to me just this last week that doctrine belongs to a time gone by and that what we need now is simply new experiences of God and his miracles. I hope that when I responded, I did it graciously. That's the way forward for the church, they say. We're starting a new thing. Come along. It's that new thing or new way of thinking about God. Well, is that really of God? Or is it the result of human pride? Or is it a trick of old Harry? I won't say the last word because I'll get in trouble. Amen. I'm sure that you are aware that's how the cult started. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Starting something new as a supposed continuation of biblical Christianity. And when you hear the word doctrine, how do you react? You go, ah! Well, it puts a smile on my face and I rarely smile. And doctrine is for all those who consider themselves Christians, regardless of their level of academical achievement or none. Regardless of the length of time they've been a Christian, and regardless of their status in the church, whether they're a pastor, a home group leader, or serving the tea and coffee, or anything. Let's not be afraid of that word, doctrine. As Adam knows, it's very much on my heart and mind. Because for every Christian, doctrine matters. It's not just what you believe, it is why you believe. And if we have solid biblical doctrine being practiced in our life, then we will be seen to be living a life of total submission and obedience to Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to the praise of God the Father. And as the mind is renewed and transformed with teaching about Jesus, we put this into practice, what the mind learns, our very lives are seen to be transformed into the image of of Jesus. We will be the face of Jesus to our community. We will be reflecting this invisible God. And people will ask us questions. They will come to us rather than us going to them. Questions like, why are you being transformed? And what is the reason for the hope that you have? And that way the gospel and good news of Jesus Christ is spread for doctrine in practice is evangelism. Is it not? It's telling others about this wondrous one and only King who is eternal, immortal, invisible 
yet made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. A saving God who is personal. And another reason to learn solid doctrine is important is that we can discern the false teaching of heretics and those who want to lead you astray. Because out there, folks, there are wolves. And they will take you like that if you do not know what and why you believe. I know, because they talk, they come and talk to me. And hopefully I can be gracious in my reply. Most of the time, anyway. And I wonder, did Steve Chalk's recent missive about homosexuality not being sinful have its origins in his changing on his thoughts of the doctrine of atonement several years ago? After all, if Jesus' sacrifice was not an atoning sacrifice, then how could the Old Testament atoning sacrifice for sin be fulfilled? It can't. So therefore, if there's no atoning sacrifice, Christians would still be in their sins. And if they're still in their sins, then they're not saved, are they? So I wonder if Mr. Chalk's diminished view of the atonement inevitably led to a diminished and dumbed-down view of sin. He's made his choice, just as Timothy had a choice to make. Does he succumb to the troublemakers, or does he submit to God via Paul? And we also have choices to make in our daily life too, don't we? Do we conform to the world, or do we conform to Jesus Christ in our decision-making? We are to be in the world, says Jesus, but not of the world. We're not on to take on the values of the world. That's the command of Jesus, who is to be our master. And your master if you're a Christian here tonight. Finally, and it's hard to ask these questions because they've been laid on my heart all week. And as I said, I've argued with God about them. I asked God if I could skip asking them several times, even when I was down there praying before. And as so usual, I was told to behave and get on with it. I'm naturally rebellious, as you know. And I could feel his hand just about here. I don't know how God treats you, but that's how he has to behave with me. Questions like, which gospel are we showing and telling others as a church and as individuals? Is it the gospel as explicitly given by Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15? Or do we deliberately or inadvertently live and tell another gospel, a false gospel, just as the Ephesian troublemakers were doing. Or the next one. Which God do we tell others about? Is it the God of the Bible who is a triunity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, of whom humanity is made in the image of? Or is it some kind of false God made in our own image? Or this one. Which Jesus do we confess and live for? These are hard questions. I've had them in my brain all week. Is it Jesus who said in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me all of you who are weary and overburdened and I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is it the Jesus who was welcoming to all but made demands on them in order to transform them? People such as the rich young man who left distraught at the demands made upon him by Jesus. Or the woman at the well who had her sins forgiven, 
but was told by Jesus to stop her lifestyle of sin. That's the Jesus of the Bible, isn't it? Or is the Jesus we share some kind of modern day Jesus who makes no demands at all? And some churches do indeed preach and teach that kind of insipid, powerless, nodding-headed Jesus. It's tougher. Are we wanting to enjoy all the benefits of being a Christian? Things such as salvation, our sins being forgiven, access to that glorious throne of grace. Do we want all that without enjoying the joy giver who wants to transform us willingly into the image of Jesus, the Son by the power of the Spirit who lives within? Because folks, it's simply idolatry to want to enjoy those benefits without enjoying and submitting to the benefit giver, the majestic king who is the only true God. It's idolatry because those things are taking precedence over worship to the king. Now you know why I had to argue. And one last one. Why do we take for granted our salvation and our meeting together with other Christians when we can? Why do our prayer meetings and our services not be filled with Christians wanting to worship, to be taught and to pray for this church, this town and the mission work around the world? Christians in persecuted churches around the world, I'm sure, meet at every opportunity they can. And finally, you'll be glad to know, why are there people coming into this church who are not Christian? And there are and yet not going on to follow Jesus and be baptised? Is that an honest question? There hasn't been a baptism here for about 15 months. Is that right, Bruce? Why not? Again, if you are here and you haven't been baptised, and you would like to, please do go see Bruce. He would welcome you with open arms. Or perhaps you're not yet one of his followers, and you're still exercising Jesus' great patience with you to accept him as Lord of your life. I don't know, I'm just bound to ask you the question. And if that's you, then please don't leave here without talking to somebody about how you can start following this Jesus. You've been told the truth. You have no excuses now for not following. Please do see Adam or Derek or the person you came with. Don't leave it too late. You won't regret following Jesus, but you may regret it if you don't start to. And then finally, finally, for the rest of us, we have a great opportunity on February 14th together to reach out into this town along with other churches in the town to tell about a God of love on the day of love. Let's go out there making the choice to submit to the power of the Spirit who is within us, follow our great hope Jesus closely to the praise and honour of God the Father. May his light so shine out from us into a town that is in spiritual darkness, much darker than is out there physically, who are dying to know personally our majestic King who is God. May his love shine out of us as we learn and submit to him and to each other, loving others and loving each other to reflect the God of love. Put your thinking and doctrine of God into practice, which is evangelism. If the God we serve is the God of 1 Timothy, a majestic king who is personal, ageless, 
without decay or corruption, invisible and the only God. And guess what? We're duty bound to tell and show others about him. God is a missionary God. He came to us so that we can bring others to him. And after all, each of us who are Christians here tonight have had somebody tell us about the offer to succumb to the fathomless patience of Jesus and accept him as master of their life. Are you ready to be the face of Jesus to others wherever you go? Whether it be at home, in your workplace, at Tesco, when you're shopping, in the rest, or when you're playing football? Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again that you are just amazing. You are wow. Thank you that you've chosen each one of us to be here. Help us not to take for granted our salvation. Help us to tell and show the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Grounded in faith. Exhibiting a good conscience. Both objectively and subjectively. And on February 14th, may we go out of here, not only knowing that we have met with you and met with each other, but that we have a message from the King of all kings to a town that is dying to know you. Amen.